Do political parties have a future in Philadelphia? Does the two-party system even work here? And do we really have one? I'm Barbara Dundon for the 20 by 70 podcast, and I'm standing on the platform at the Chestnut Hill West train station on a drizzly weekday morning to find out what voters here think about the party they've chosen. Are you registered to vote? Yes, ma'am. Were there a particular party? Uh, Democrat Party. And can you tell me why? Yes, uh, I was, uh, two words, I guess, Barack Obama. Was it Barack Obama? No, it was, um, uh, good Lord, uh, Michael Nutter. So I was a registered independent for many years. And then when Michael Nutter was running for mayor, it was important enough to me that he get elected that I made sure I registered as a Democrat to vote in the primary, which is essentially the general for, uh, for the mayoralty in Philadelphia, um, and have been a Democrat ever since. Democrat. I felt that I could influence the outcome more if I was registered Democrat. Democratic. Can you tell me why? Oh, I guess they align more with my values. I've never re- actually registered with a party before until I moved to Philadelphia or Pennsylvania. So I wanted to participate in the primary, so I chose Democrat. Well, where were you from before? Maryland. And you didn't have to choose? No. So. You think that was better? In some ways, yeah. I don't like, I don't like uh, saying I'm one thing or another. I like to be able to make an independent decision. So I'm going to get on my train. Thank you. <laughs> Well, it's a very small random sample, but on this train platform today, Philadelphia sure seems like a one-party town. For some more discussion about the future of political parties in our city, let me throw it back to our host, Chris Satura. Thanks, Barbara. I am Chris Satulo, and this is 20 by 70, the podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia. Listening to those chats that Barbara had with folks on the regional rail platform, did you detect a few themes? Even in Chestnut Hill, with its leafy streets lined with chic shops and mansions, it can be hard to find a registered Republican. But among the many Democrats you meet, there are two camps. Some are philosophically aligned and loyal to the party. Others have registered as D's simply to have a say in a very blue town with very closed primaries. But where does all that leave the future of the Democratic and the Republican Party organizations in Philly? To help us talk through that topic, we have two guests joining us in the Wexler studio in Kelly Writer's house on the Penn campus. First up is Jim Saxa, who writes for Plan Philly, and also just wrote a really interesting piece analyzing the recent district attorney's race for Slate. Welcome to 20 by 70, Jim. Thanks for having me, Chris. Well, last month's city primary elections produced two results that would have seemed surprising only five months ago. Civil rights attorney and police critic Larry Krasner won the DA's primary, and challenger Rebecca Reinhardt beat incumbent controller Alan Butkovitz, who was endorsed by the party leaders. So, Jim, you wrote about the election, primarily the district attorney's race uh, in Slate, and argued that national observers have been pretty aggressively misinterpreting what happened. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, I think the Democratic Party since Trump's election has been, you know, desperately hungry for some sort of win, and they haven't gotten it in a lot of races. I'm thinking John Ossoff in uh, Georgia. Uh, there's a Kansas uh, congressional race. They lost a, a, a the Omaha, Nebraska mayoral race. Montana. Montana just uh, last week, despite. Uh, Jim Forte beating up a reporter on the eve of the election. Despite or because of, we're not sure. All right. 
But, um, you know, so when Larry Krasner, who was by far uh, the most progressive of a very progressive uh, slate of candidates running for the DA's office, won the Democratic primary, it was a cause for celebration. Um, but in some ways, I think that's uh, among progressives, among like, progressives, right, I yeah. should say, yes. Uh, but in some ways, I think, you know, that sort of buries the lead. I mean, I, as I just said, all of the seven candidates for the Democratic uh, nomination ran as progressives and some were more progressive than others. And Larry was the true believer amongst the bunch. But B, it's sort of incredible that the most liberal candidate doesn't always win in a city like Philadelphia. Um yeah, you know, we voted for Hillary Clinton by 67 points over Trump. We have a 7 to 1 Democratic to Republican voter registration. This is the sort of place where the most liberal candidate should almost always be the, uh, you know, by far and away favorite going into a race. And so, you know, I don't think this is a sort of uh, win that the national uh, progressives can take as an example that, you know, finally they're taking off and, you know, um, you know, things are doing great for them now and as a sign of good things to come in the future. Well, let me challenge you a little bit on that, just just to say that the Democratic Party organization in Philadelphia, uh, once regarded as very powerful and particularly powerful in off-year elections like this, has not often been known as um, the province of wild-eyed, you know, progressives and liberals. Um, it has been much more of the sort of labor-dominated, maybe centrist wing of the, the party, the, the wing that supported Hillary Clinton. So isn't a Krasner victory in that sense at least uh, something that progressives can celebrate? Absolutely. I think Philadelphia progressives mm -hmm. can celebrate and crow from the rooftops. Um, I just don't think it's a, a broader indication of where things are going nationally. Right. Understood. So it wasn't like Larry Krasner beat Jeff Sessions in this race. Either. No, as much as people want that to be the, the story, and it has been cast as that story, I don't think you can make that argument. But you can make the argument that this might have been the death you know, blow to the Democratic machine in Philadelphia as we've known it for so long. So talk a little bit about that. How did the Democratic Party organization, its leaders, um, sort of engage with and play out in the DA's race? Right. So the Democratic Party didn't nominate uh, or didn't select anyone to back uh, in the DA's race. Um, so the ward sort of split. But what you really saw was outside groups. Uh, a lot of hay was made about George Soros and his money, but it wasn't just that. Which backed Larry Krasner. Which backed Larry Krasner. But Larry Krasner also benefited from the ACLU, which didn't also, which also did not endorse uh, Krasner or anyone specifically. But they did a project where they went door to door, getting out votes, uh, using uh, former uh, com convicted felons to were telling their story of how they're incarcerated, to tell the story of trying to end mass incarceration. That obviously helped Larry Krasner. Um, looking, you know, at down ballot of the other races, you know, Rebecca Reinhart defeated Alan Buckovitz. Alan Buckovitz was on every sample ballot that the Democratic City Committee handed out uh, on the election day. Uh, but um, what was interesting is that Reinhart was on almost all of the DA candidates' ballots, the ballots that the individual campaigns were handing out, and a bunch of other uh, other you know side groups that were out there who want a more progressive uh, candidate. 
Also, um, so to underline that, most of the DA's candidates were actively supporting in their election day material the candidate who was running against the endorsed party incumbent, Alan Buckley. Exactly. And if you asked a bunch of uh, the, the, the DA uh, campaign managers why they did that, they were running as the progressive again, as the fresh new thing, as the, like we're not the old party, we're not Seth Williams, and we're also going to bring in a sea of change. So, of course, they wanted to align themselves with uh, Rebecca Reinhardt and not Alan Buckovitz. And this is in a city where Lynn Abraham usually won election easily, maybe not proudly supporting, but carrying the moniker of America's deadliest DA, definitely a law and order kind of candidate as DA. You know, I think uh, things have changed. You know, uh, we're, we're living in the country where the big sort, you know, has happened. And when um, Lynn The Abraham, big sort, explain that for people who don't know that term. So, yeah, so Bill Bishop wrote this book, The Big Sort, and in it he argues that Americans are dividing themselves, uh, you know, willfully, uh, almost intentionally, into different camps based off their political uh, ideology. And you know, Democrats are, you know, we're xenophilic, right? So uh, Democrats go to, um, you know, the cities and the near suburbs where there's a whole mix of different people and different experiences. And, you know, the more traditional-minded Republicans, they're going to – they're staying in the rural areas or staying in the exurbs or they're moving to those places where they can have the white picket fence and all that. And because we're not interacting with one another and because the parties have become more ideologically uh, pure on both sides, we're not having the sort of uh, arguments and, you know, coming to the same sort of understandings that we used to in the past. And so – Democrats talk to Democrats, Republicans talk to Republicans, and both of those groups tend to become more extreme as a consequence. So Philadelphia, when Lynn Abraham was winning uh, in, in you know, handed fashion, uh, the city was only four to one back then, which was a big deal. We used to say, oh, my God, four to one. And now we're seven to one, mm -hmm. Democrat to Republican. And when you have that just amped up level of you know, sort of ideological conversations that lead to ideological purity, you know, of course they're going to become, you know, more liberal. The other thing that happened in the controller's race, and we'll get um, to this a little bit more when Claudia Vargas joins us um, from the Inquirer, but Alan Butkovitz is from Northeast Philadelphia, which is sort of the home of what used to be called Reagan Democrats, now maybe Trump voters. Uh, he's a Democratic ward leader up there. Um, the Northeast didn't turn out. His ward barely turned out for him. He just barely... Um, so it seems like a lot of people in the Northeast just sat this one out, and this was a center city, northwest Philly kind of election. Yeah, it seems like the traditional ward you know, system of getting out votes didn't work, and a lot of the places that were targeted by you know, the actual campaigns and you know, some of the outside campaigns, uh, they, they did. Uh, I think the actual knocking on doors and dragging people out of their homes and talking to people to persuade them that was happening outside of the city party and entirely by, you know, these various campaigns. It's almost a, a mirror of what, you know, happened with Barack Obama when he first ran and created his own organization outside of the, you know, the DNC uh, system. Right. So I just want to do one more topic uh, with you, Jim. Um, I'm looking across at you. You have a very handsome full beard without a trace of gray in it, which means that you're only recently graduated from that group known as Young Involved Philadelphia, where you were at one time a board member. And I know enough always to avoid the mistake of having one person stand for an entire group. But I was just wondering if you would feel comfortable talking a little bit about 
um, that group and sort of the the cohort of uh, politically aware, civically engaged um, millennials in Philadelphia, and how they feel about the Democratic Party and particularly the the established organization of the party. All right. Well, first off, Chris, I think you need to get your eyes fixed. Uh, <laughs> nothing handsome about this, but. Um, yeah, the party uh, and Young Involved Philadelphia, yeah, I was on the board for a couple of years. And millennials, I think, uh, their relationship with the, the party is almost non-existent. I think they see it as um, either the, the boogeyman, you know, like the bad guy that's preventing good things from happening, or they just don't care. Um, you know, there's still a large amount of apathy uh, among people who just don't see – uh, especially, you know, machine, dirty government, you know, the whole nine, that, that imagery as a way forward uh, for things to get fixed. And, you know, the, the original, you know, one, one of when I first joined Young Involved Philadelphia, uh, a lot of people came to that group because they wanted to affect change in the city. But they did not see politics as a uh, method of doing that. That's and, the critical point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really, again, you know, the Trump election has changed a lot of things, uh, the way a lot of people perceive the world around them, I think. And now you're seeing a bunch of people in, you know, my age cohort uh, that are getting more political. People that weren't political are getting political, and people that were political are, for the first time, thinking seriously about running for office. And, you know, Rebecca Reinhardt is, you know, technically a Gen Xer, but, you know, she said, you know, she decided to run on election night. You know, after Trump won, she decided she needed to get involved directly. And, you know, I think you're going to hear a lot of stories like that in the next uh, two or three years. Right. And one of the uh, sort of ongoing disputes, as I understand it right now, is post-election, some people have been arguing that how you start is you run for committee person. And you begin to change the Democratic Party from within. Others are going, really, that seems like a waste of time, you know, trying to change a moribund organization. Do you hear that conversation going on? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an organization out there, um, Philly 3.0, um, which is, you know, a, a pack based, uh, backed by some, you know, who knows exactly who. Yeah. But uh, We've had them on the podcast. Okay. You know, and I'm, I'm friends with the people that, that run that sort of thing. Their whole... Their whole argument is that you go in and fix this, you know, you fix the system by replacing the people in the system, essentially. And so they're going that direct route. Um, but I think a lot of these races um, showed recently that you don't need to go through the system to get into office. And being in offices where, you know, the actual policies happen. Um, now, Reinhardt did a great job of independently fundraising, and you can't say that she's some sort of outsider. She's been, she was, you know, in Nutter's administration and then Kenny's administration after that in very prominent positions, but backed by Ed Rendell very strongly. Yeah, um, but you know, I think there there's an argument happening. Uh, I don't know what the answer is to that by any means, um, but. You know, it does seem the fact that we have a group of people that are dedicated to reforming the machine from the inside and a bunch of people that want to just attack it from the outside really suggests that the machine either is not doing what it's supposed to 
or is just moribund right now and is uh, in inviting these attacks. And I think, you know, you're going to see some change uh, pretty soon, some dramatic change. So you've been hearing from Jim Saxa of Plan Philly, WHLY at newsworks.org. Thanks very much, Jim. Thank you, Chris. This 20 by 70 podcast is brought to you in partnership with a great group called Young Involved Philadelphia. YIP, as it's known, builds relationships and increases civic engagement to empower and connect young Philadelphians. YIP promotes active citizenship and emerging leadership among young Philadelphians. Its next big event is an Ideas to Action Forum. That'll happen at 6 p.m. June 14th at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. And that's at 1300 Locust Street, Philadelphia. 20 by 70 and YIP, working together for a more civically engaged Philadelphia. Next on the podcast, 70 CEO David Thornburg interviews another journalist who follows Philadelphia's political scene. So we're joined now by Claudia Vargas, who is City Hall reporter with the Philadelphia Inquirer, philly.com. And uh, thanks for being with us today, Claudia. Thanks for having me. So last time I saw you, you were covering an event that we did with the Philadelphia Citizen, which was one of the only forums around the city controllers race. We had uh, Alan Butkovitz and Rebecca Reinhardt. Uh, you were on the scene and filed a story. So this was about a week before the election. I, just, just curious if you can kind of recall your thoughts about how the race was playing out at that point, because it turned out quite dramatically. But It did, yeah. I mean, at that time, it was, I remember, as you said, it was one of two debates that there were on the controller's race. And that one in particular, I think, because it was a week before the election, got pretty punchy. I mean, you know, both candidates were at one point or another yelling at each other and, uh, I remember just thinking to myself, well, both of these are trying, Rebecca's trying really hard to make a point that Alan is political insider and that the voters should vote him out of office and that she's the one that's qualified to do this. And Alan was trying to put up a defense against that, saying, I have, you know, I've investigated Sheriff John Green, you know, I've done all these things, so you can't call me a political hack because I've actually gone after some of these tough political insiders as well. Right. Um, so if, if, yeah. I, mm -hmm. if you had to bet, uh, on that night, uh, Tuesday, a week before the election, would you have? How would you have called the race? I, Too close to call, blowout, one way or the other. Not a blowout, but I still thought, to be honest, that it was going to be Alan Butkovitz. I mean, this is a the city controller seat has primarily been held by um, Democratic insiders. He's been he was going for his fourth term already. Before him, it was Jonathan Seidel, another Democratic Party insider. For him, Joe Vignola. So there's been a history there, and controller's races tends to be a low voter turnout, which usually means it's the ward leaders who have a right. lot of um, pull in that. And so just by the history of it, I just assumed Alan Butkovitz will win again. You know, right. Rebecca's making a good run at it, but I thought in the end Alan would be safe. And I think he did too. And and you could see that um, just a few days before the election when we reported on the campaign finance reports, Rebecca raised more than double what he raised. She raised about 105000 and he had only raised 51000 And I remember that was the first sign of me thinking, huh, huh 
like, wow, like, I wonder if something could happen here because yeah. he seems very comfortable. I mean, he only raised 51000 and it was 11000 here, 11000 there from like, the unions versus she had raised from a lot of individual donors. So you could tell that there was some support there for right. her. Um, and so that was when I thought, wow, like he, he should probably be a little nervous about this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Turns out he should have been a lot nervous. Yeah. So, you know, as you pointed out, this is what the academics talk about as kind of a classic low information, low turnout race. This is where the machine kicks in, hiring people to stand at the polling places and hand out sample ballots, tell you who to vote for. Ho-hum, here we go. You pointed out we'd had a a series of people like Alan Butkovitz elected to this office. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Come election day, uh, Rebecca Reinhardt wins not just narrowly but convincingly. It's a blowout, 18-point uh, win. So now that we're on the other side of that, and we have about a couple weeks' worth of perspective to try to figure this out, what are your, what are your takeaways? What do, you, what do you make of this? What was going on that maybe we didn't see uh, even a week before? Yeah, I mean, I think it just goes to show that there is, there's starting to be some big holes in the Democratic Party uh, machine. I think that, as I said before, everybody just thought that the machine could still turn out the votes. And I think this was a clear example of there's something happening in the city. And I think part of that is um, sort of the generational shift of we have a lot of millennials moving into the city. Millennials tend to be a little more progressive. And, for example, um, Johnny, John Doherty's ward. That one, Krasner won there, and I believe that Rebecca also won there by a lot. And so it's a classic example of that South Philly, that's past Yonk area. A lot of young people are moving in, and the young people aren't, they're not used to the machine, they're not involved with the machine. And so I think there's kind of been this shift of just younger people trying right. to pick their own folks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Jim Saxa made uh, his comments about the DA's race was that, you know, there was a, an attempt to sort of overlay a national narrative on that, that this was a, kind of a revenge of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, Larry Krasner, the darling of the uh, uber progressives. And Jim pushed back against that and said, you know, whoa, 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 you make a mistake when you overgeneralize that, that kind of thing. So is this is the controller's race outcome more of a Philadelphia story? Are there connections to a national narrative or is it more of a there's some important lessons about what's going on in Philadelphia? Yeah, no, I think it's definitely more of a local race, um, especially with the controller. I mean, hardly anybody knows. Ask your average person on the street. I don't know if they could answer what the controller does. Um, I think, you know, Rebecca did benefit a bit from sort of the progressives that came out for Krasner. Um, I think they were of the same mindset of we need new progressive leaders. And she had taken on that sort of on the reform candidate. Um, so I think she benefited a little bit from that. But also, just like I said before, I think people are starting to get tired of the same kind of like dynasties of like these political insiders holding office for, you know, multiple terms. Right. Although, as he pointed out, she was hardly an outsider. She was a government insider. Right. I did a piece. Yeah, it was um, kind of an insider mm -hmm. outsider, really. Well, no, it was I think it was two different types of insiders. One was a political insider. The other one, you know, Rebecca was a government insider. And both of them also have, you know, pros and cons to each one of those. So it was interesting to kind of see the two with Rebecca trying to pitch herself as a reformer. Um, but at the same time, she's been in government for so long. And so. Right. Um, well, and she mm -hmm. says, uh, you know, as part of her her message that she was inspired to run by the presidential outcome mm -hmm. last November. And, you know, a lot of uh, open questions as to whether other folks will uh, heed that call. Um 
So your your paper a couple of days ago ran an editorial highly critical of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. basically said the, these are the kinds of elections that a party machine is supposed to be able to, to deliver, mm-hmm. and seemingly the Democratic Party can't deliver a bologna sandwich. Uh, so do we know enough yet to know whether this is sort of like the shape of things to come uh, and the Democratic Party is going to continue to sort of lumber along increasingly ineffective? And if that's the case, then to your point about the kind of millennial engaged activists and so forth, where do they turn? How do they organize? What What's your – I mean, these are tough questions to answer, but what, what do you think is coming down the pike? I think it's a little early to tell with how it's going to – how this election will have an effect long term with the machine. Bob Brady's still in charge. Um, you sort of have the same old school, longtime ward leaders. So I, I wonder, though, if with this election and just kind of this new increase in um, millennials being more interested in civic engagement and politics, whether we'll start seeing a little bit of a shift with these younger folks getting more politically active and therefore could they become ward leaders um, and then start sort of slowly changing the uh, the makeshift of the of the party. To change it from within, essentially. Correct, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so I think that'll take some time. Um, I know that there's like a few millennial packs that have been have started right. to get pretty active with each election, um, endorsing their candidates, raising money, and you see it more and more each election. They're kind of getting a, yeah. a, a bigger, bigger group of folks involved and interested. Yeah. So, um, so I think it'll it'll take time, but I think you are starting to see that shift. Could be the first Robin of Spring, or or, or something else, right. or the canary mm-hmm. in the coal mine. <laughs> <laughs> Two birds for different purposes. Yeah. Um, Back to Rebecca Reinhardt mm-hmm. for a sec. Uh, she does have a general election uh, to run and, and win in the fall mm-hmm. uh, against a Republican opponent. But assuming that these things proceed more normally now, she'll be the city controller. She got there without the support of the Democratic mm-hmm. machine. She's also pledged, suggested she would play a more uh, collaborative role with the city government, not a kind of a classic watchdog uh, role. Most of what you cover is city government as opposed to the political beat. I'm, I'm just curious as to uh, your thoughts as to, you know, as she staffs her office, as she makes the, the calls about which department to investigate or audit, how her relationship with the, with the political party might uh, kind of roll forward. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see who she staffs her office with and, and what she how she goes about it, especially in her first year. I think that'll obviously be very telling with how she will go about doing her job. That was one of the big criticisms that Ellen Butkovitz had against her, saying, how can you possibly audit your own work? Um, because before she ran for office, she was the chief administrative officer. She was in charge of procurement and several changes that were done there. Prior to that, she was the budget director, so she was in charge of setting the budget for every department. Right. Um, and so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how she handles that when she goes in to look at the procurement department. Um, is she going to be critical of what they've done, given that she kind of planted the seed for whatever they've been doing in the last year? Yeah. So I think it'll we'll have to wait yeah. and see how. how but she... in the old days, you know, you get elected by the machine, and then you know after the election, uh, you're uh, kind of hiring list is provided to mm-hmm. you and here's how you staff up but uh, this feels like quite a different environment mm-hmm. from those days uh, days gone by yeah I wonder if she'll poach uh, people from the administration you know <laughs> that would be she... interesting yeah uh, so. <laughs> yeah kind of a, a really interesting dynamic yeah. there this to me I'm 
seen a few elections. This, this, there's something quite significant about this uh, this local election. And uh, as you pointed out, there's a number of things that we want to uh, keep our eye on. Could be good, could be bad around the party, around the way the controller's office operates with the city administration, and so forth and so on. So, thanks for being with us, and uh, we'll see you see you on the trail. Sounds good. Thank you. <laughs> Well, to put a little icing on the cake on this discussion, I'm going to drag my unindicted co-conspirator, Chris Satulo, uh, back into the conversation. Big picture thoughts about what the, this last race means for politics and the political parties. Chris, you wrote a, a great piece in the Inquirer a little while ago about open primaries. You want to put sure. that in the context of this discussion? Sure. So... Um Argue against myself for a second. You know, you could you could make the the case that we just had a Democratic primary where there were seven candidates. There was a great deal of choice. Um, often the case against closed primaries is it restricts the choice voters have, and we had an incumbent upset in the controller's race again. So what's the problem? Well, a big part of the problem is that about one out of eight, between one out of eight and one out of nine registered voters in Philadelphia is an independent. And basically had nothing to do yeah, on primary day. Absolutely. You know, they could, if they cared to, march to the polls and vote on a couple of uh, city referenda. But, you know, looking at the turnout numbers, while a little bit better than expected, still fairly feeble, as, as you know, discussed, about 18 percent, um, clearly they didn't. And so a lot of the kind of voters, and this is a focus of mine, a lot of the voters who are shut out of any meaningful choice are the very people who Jim Saxon was talking about a little while ago. Um, right. Civically engaged millennials who really care about their adopted city um, but aren't attracted to traditional party politics. They've registered as independents. That, to them, represents who they are. But they move in the city. They begin to care about things. They want to have a voice. They, and I've heard very sad, tragic, poignant tales of young voters, youngish voters, 20, voters in their 20s and their early 30s, going to the polls in May, all excited that there's election, only to be turned yeah. away. You know, they came from another state where, guess what? They yeah. have such a thing as open primaries. Yeah. What's an open primary? Well, they come in a couple of flavors, but basically um, – in an open primary, any independent can vote. In some states, they have to register for the purpose of that particular right. election cycle as a Democrat or Republican. Clearly, they have to choose which one they're going to vote in. They can't vote in both. Or you can have a truly open primary where the party labels don't matter. Everyone gets to vote. It's like the first round of a job interview where right. you have a lot of candidates and you yeah. sort them down to a smaller so, list. So the parties still matter. They can still put yeah. up candidates. They can endorse a candidate, but they don't have ironclad lockdown control of the choices um, faced by voters. And yeah. the argument for open primaries is, A, in America, everyone who wants to vote should be able to vote. But in Philadelphia, the really critical election, which is usually a Democratic primary, we're shutting large percentage of the electorate out of it. And two, if you have some form of open primary, it allows newcomers or moderate candidates or sort of outsiders or critics of the existing party structure, the incumbents, a much better chance of 
making a case, having their case be heard, and getting all the votes that um, their case deserves. Yeah. You do not get that in a closed primary. Yeah. Any uh, particular reaction beyond the usual uh, swarm of comments on philly.com uh, to your piece? Um, Anything useful you took away from the reaction? Um, well, um, as we've discussed off mic, David, I have an ironclad rule that I don't <laughs> you look, never look at the I don't look at comments <laughs> on philly.com, but I did, did get a number of emails. And there are a number of Democrats who are concerned, and you know, not without reason. There have been occasions where things like this have happened in the past. One notorious uh, example is when Rush Limbaugh was urging his um, his followers, the Ditto heads, to temporarily register as Democrats in Michigan to affect the primary opponent that the Republican candidate would eventually face in the fall. So that could happen. I mean, there are always any election system yeah. has problems. I think the problems we have embedded in closed primaries of large and growing segments of the populace being shut out of the real action and a situation where it's very hard for outsider interesting candidates to, to get on the ballot with a real chance. I think that's a much bigger problem than the off chance that occasionally yeah. – a swarm of people will switch parties and influence all the race. We've we've talked before about open primaries. We'll talk about them again. Much more to come on that front. Sure. Uh, I have a, a just a couple of takeaways just to um, maybe close out the conversation. You know, uh, we, we, we're a little worked up in the lather about how cool it was that all these millennial activists came out to vote, uh, keeping in mind that still citywide turnout was about 18%. So, I mean, that was significantly better than it was before, uh, in similar elections, but uh, we're still not setting uh, significant new records there. The second thing is, you know, when we had uh, Dave Davies and Solomon Jones on a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the DA's race. We were a little concerned that you had seven candidates, no endorsed candidates, that maybe we were going to elect one with 20,000 votes. That uh, didn't quite happen. I think Larry Krasner got about 50,000 votes. Yeah, 55, uh, yeah. So, you know, maybe uh, we're still continue to be interested in uh, every policy wonk's favorite topic, which is ranked choice voting. But at least for the time being, we didn't play out. Although, keeping in mind, 55,000 in a city of a million and a half people with a, a million registered voters yeah, is, a small is not exactly, you know, uh, But he definitely, of those who cared enough to vote, he got uh, a distinctive majority. So you can s sort of feel that. You know, the candidate right. who appealed to the largest number of voters clearly That's right. won. Still not 50% of the voters, which is the right. core principle right. that the ranked choice voter crowd has. The, the final thing I'd say, I mean, this whole tension that Jim Sachs had described between what some folks talk about as the, the amateurs in politics and the professionals has been playing out for a long time. There's a, a hugely influential book uh, that was written by James Q. Wilson in the early 60s called The Amateur Democrat, which at that time said uh, political machines in, in big cities are dead, you know, st uh, stick a nail in their, in their coffin. They haven't been dead. I mean, the Inquirer and Daily News describe them as zombies. <laughs> they're, they're undead, roaming the earth. Um, it, it is uh, really fascinating and important to see how that plays out because, uh, again, as Jim says, giving uh, particularly young people uh, a piece of the action and voice and, a, and the ability to influence a direction uh, I think is hugely significant. Parties seem to play a uh, a more and more insignificant role in this whole process, but it, it will, it, and it's hard to predict the future. I, I would bet that 
my my bet is we're in a post-party world, uh, which opens up a lot of opportunities, but time will tell. Yeah, well, if you watch TV, David, you know how hard it can be to kill the zombies. <laughs> right. They just keep coming back season after season. No That's matter, right. No matter what you the do. Walking Dead, you know. Yeah, I mean, exactly. if it were easy, that would be like a one series, uh, you know, one season kind of a series. But beat them or burn them, stake through the heart. You still can't make <laughs> That's them. Right. You can't make them. Well, really you know, dead. I grew up on George Romero right. in Western Pennsylvania, and that that is still, you know, the defining zombie uh, movie. We could talk a lot about zombies, but. But we're going to close out here, and I'll turn it over to you, Chris. Definitely. On that note of walking death, there you have it. Yet another episode of this scrappy little podcast for people who expect more from Philly. Thanks again to our guests, Claudia Vargas of The Enquirer and Philly.com, and Jim Sachs of Plan Philly Newsworks and WHYY. Huge props, as always, to our intrepid producer, Barbara Dundon, and our capable engineer manning the dials and levers in the Wexler studio, Zach Gardner. Praise and gratitude, as always, to the man I just spoke to, 70s head honcho David Thornburg. He makes this podcast possible. Well, that's it. So how else to wrap this one up but with our motto here at 20 by 70? Once again, expect more Philadelphia.